taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress. To the city point, giving him your best, nothing like the rest, passing every test. You know he's the one, yeah. Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress. To the city point, giving him your best, nothing like the rest, passing every test. You know he's the one, yeah. Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress. To the city point, giving him your best, nothing like the rest, passing every test. You know he's the one, yeah. Well, I want to jump into a sermon that I started uh, over a week ago and and couldn't quite get there last Sunday. So I told you guys, I promised you guys I would be ready today. And the reason that it has taken me some time is because it is um, a wrestling with something theologically and there are are no simple answers to it. And and so the question that I want to raise, and, and I needed this personally, is why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? I think that there are easy, simple, sort of religious canned responses that don't quite fit and work out. And so I wanted us to spend some time just really diving into this question. And and I don't, even in preaching it, let me just preface by saying I don't have an easy answer, but I do want us to explore it. And perhaps out of this sermon, we can develop a collective theology regarding what are the reasons that bad things don't happen or what are not the reasons that bad things happen rather than coming up with easy answers for why they happen. Uh, Let's go to Job, uh, Job chapter one. Um, I'm going to be reading probably about 10 verses or so, and I'm going to skip over some parts. Many of you um, are familiar with the story of Job. It's, a, it's an Old Testament narrative, so it's too much to give you the whole, read all the scriptures to give the context, but I'll give it through the course of the sermon. Job chapter 1, I'm going to be reading from the contemporary English version of scripture. Here's what it says. Many years ago, a man named Job lived in the land of Uz. He was a truly good person who respected God and refused to do evil. Job had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the richest person in the East. Job's sons and daughters were having a feast in the home of his oldest son. I'm in verse 13 now. When someone rushed up to Job and said, while your servants were plowing with your oxen and your donkeys were nearby eating grass, a gang of Sabaeans attacked and stole the oxen and donkeys. Your other servants were killed, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 16, that servant was still speaking when a second one came running and said, God sent down a fire that killed your sheep and your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Before that servant finished speaking, a third one raced up and said, three gangs of Chaldeans um, attacked and stole your camels. All of your other servants were killed, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 18, that servant was still speaking when a fourth one dashed up and said, your children were having a feast and drinking wine at the home of your oldest son. When suddenly a windstorm from the desert blew the house down, crushing all of your children. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 20, when Job heard this, he tore his clothes and shaved his head because of his great sorrow. He knelt on the ground, then worshiped God 
and said, we bring nothing at birth. We take nothing with us at death. The Lord alone gives and takes. Praise the name of the Lord. In spite of everything, Job did not sin or accuse God of doing wrong. Once again, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? The question must be asked, and by many of you has already been asked, why do bad things happen? For the past two years, it has seemed to me that the world has been broken. Because the logics that guided my life regarding what could or would not happen have been disrupted. And now the inconceivable have become unsurprising realities. Perhaps it can be argued that many of us were lulled to sleep by our own naivety that we have had in the past. Perhaps too many of us were raised during a time of unusual peace and normalcy. Whatever it is, it seems that since early 2020, the unwritten presumed rules have been suspended. And now anything can seem to happen to anybody. I watched on TV as Russia invaded Ukraine under false pretenses. And kids and mothers hugged fathers and husbands, possibly for the last time. These men were who were a part of a workforce just a week before that were now a part of an ad hoc army that was defending their cities and their villages. I saw apartment buildings and hospitals with people inside get bombed by Russian shells. I heard reports of Russian soldiers using rape as a weapon of war. Things that I am accustomed to seeing or hearing about on documentaries about a bygone era were unfolding in real time in 2022. My mind doesn't have to go all the way to Eastern Europe to be surprised by violence. I really can just go right up the street on Michigan Avenue. In the middle of downtown Chicago, at the Bean in Millennium Park, bullets flying as children are playing, as tourists are taking pictures. Those presumptions that we used to have about being in so-called safe areas of the city have been flipped on their head, and now we are on alert wherever we go. You can get carjacked anywhere. You can get robbed anywhere. You you can be hit by a stray bullet anywhere. Violence and suffering have been democratized. COVID has dealt death to the old and to the young. Mass shootings, over 200 already this year, have made life seem precarious. We hear of death. We hear of dying. We hear of sickness and violence and suffering. We hear about these things so often, and there appears to be no logic to any of it. Yet bad is not just happening to bad people. People are not directly reaping what they have sown. It seems like the logics are off, like the world is broken, especially for those of us to whom it has hit close to home. And so the Lord gate pressed it on my heart this morning to raise the question, why do bad things happen? 
It is a question essentially on the minds of those of us who are trying to maintain faith and a sense of logic about God as the logics about the world seem to be turned upside down. Why do bad things happen? I was a volunteer at field day at my daughter's school a few weeks ago. And I looked around as I was out on the field, I looked around at the kids and it hit home to me that somebody had the nerve and the stomach to shoot kids that are that age in school. Why do bad things happen? Well, if there is a God in the world who is sovereign, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, why is it that bad things happen? This question, why do bad things happen, is the question that is the subject of the book of Job. It is unclear whether or not Job is an actual account or a fiction created by its author for the sake of teaching a lesson. We don't know if it was just created for the sake of teaching important lessons about suffering and God or whether or not this is real. But either way, it's a famous story. Perhaps it is one of the most famous or popular ones in the Bible. Oftentimes, Job has been used as a means to teach us how we ought to endure and maintain our faith in the midst of suffering. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there is another important point to Job. And that point connects us to our question today. A question that confounds our minds today and has likewise confounded the minds of people for hundreds of generations, and will confound people for hundreds of generations to come if the Lord tarries. It'll confound the people who believe that there somehow is a logic to our world, or an all-powerful hand that is guiding our world. It is a question that will be on our minds again, why do bad things happen? When the story of Job opens up, Job's good life is outlined. We learn that Job was wealthy, that Job had high social status, that Job was moral, that Job had everything going for him. Soon after that, we are introduced to a test or a dare between God and Satan. It is in this story that God brags about Job, and Satan says that Job only serves God because of God's blessing. Satan dares God that if the blessings and protections are removed from Job, Job will curse God. In the way that the story goes, God accepts this challenge. Again, let me stress that we don't know whether or not this is supposed to be a real story or a fictional tale that is meant to communicate a point. I personally lean toward the side of believing that this is a fictional story. It is hard for me to believe that God is messing up people's lives, killing their adult children, damaging their health, and stripping them of their wealth in order to prove a point that he already knew to Satan. There is too much collateral damage in this contest for me to believe in God and believe that this is real. But in the way the story goes, Job loses all of his adult children to death. Job loses all of his livestock, which is essentially his wealth. Job's body breaks out in boils. Job is hit by several significant sequential disasters in his life, and Job goes into deep mourning. But even in the midst of Job mourning, 
Job continues to honor God. Job's famous line speaks to his faith-filled outlook. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In essence, Job says, I came into the world with nothing. I will leave the world with nothing. Anything that I have had in the interim is simply God's blessing through lending. I will bless God anyway. May I stop and say parenthetically that all of us have experienced the Lord gives part of that statement. All of us have or will experience the Lord takes away part of it. But it is a challenging feat to be able to say, in the midst of hurt and in the midst of loss, the blessed be the name of the Lord part of that statement. And this is what is special about Job. And it seems that the author is using this statement, real or created, to make a point about Job's faith and disposition toward God. This is a crucial part to remember. And so while Job is grieving, he sits in sackcloth on a heap of ashes, which is this ancient Near Eastern kind of form of mourning. And while Job is in grief, he's confronted by three friends. Three friends who attempt to comfort him, but in their attempt to comfort him, raise some important theological question for the reader about suffering and why bad things happen. And so I want to look at their responses to Job as potential reasons to consider when, the, when probing the question, why do bad things happen? The first reason that his friends say is that suffering happens as personal retribution. Job's three friends, uh, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, they come to Job, they sit with him for seven days, seven nights, and they don't say a word. They are just there to comfort them. They are just there to share space. There in that is a picture of the value of friends that just simply show up. But when they begin to speak, their view and their understanding of God starts to come out. Among other things, Eliphaz raises the question in Job chapter 4 and 7, who that was innocent ever perished? This statement kicks off two chapters of Eliphaz essentially making the case that in order for Job to suffer, there must be something that Job has done. In essence, the perspective of Eliphaz is that suffering is justice. That, that essentially the world is a scale that must be balanced between deeds and rewards and that God is the cosmic judge who works diligently to keep the score and to balance out the scales. And, and so when people suffer, when bad things happen, it is because of something bad that they have done and the suffering is simply God collecting the bill that is due. This is a belief that is not only held by Job's friends, but may I submit that it is also a belief held by many of us. It is not just a belief that we have snatched out of thin air, but some of the writers of the biblical text seem to hold this same view. But when we look at the story of Job, it throws a wrench in that view. 
Because the story starts out for us establishing the fact that Job was blameless, that Job was sinless, that Job was moral, that Job was upright. In the story, the writer has God bragging on Job. And so what I believe is that Job's case is meant to break down the suggestion that bad things happen as a form of justice. It makes sense because how can a suffering baby be alive but for a few days and those days be filled with suffering? What what sins did that baby commit to earn that kind of retribution? What justice, what retribution is the baby being paid for if we were to use that theological formula? What what retribution is a young sex trafficking victim receiving? For what sins are school children paying which causes them to have to lose their lives? Because they took some cookies without asking for it? Because they told a little lie to their parents? If we are to carry this Theology, we are to believe that every time somebody suffers, God is somehow balancing the scales. Job makes his case. Job makes his case to his friends. He says to them that he is not hiding some hidden sin that needs to be confessed to God. Job argues that he is not leading some double life. He is not pretend holy. He is legit holy. Job pleads his case that he is suffering and that bad things are happening in his life and he is not to blame. There's a second thought which comes up from Job's friend Bildad. This one can be found in Job chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. It says, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. The second reason that we see here in the text is proximal retribution. Retribution. The second position states that Job lost his children, not because of his sins, but because of their sins. Yet this position tries to argue that it is okay that Job was upright and blameless, but it is because of the sins of his children that they have died. And that Job's suffering through mourning their loss, through grieving their loss, is collateral damage for their sins. Yeah, this argument follows a lot of the same reasoning as the first argument because it tries to correlate suffering with sin. It, it follows this logic that if something bad has happened, the sudden passing of a friend or a relative that has left us to grieve, the loss of a job because of a downturn in the company, that these things have happened and we suffer grief or we suffer materially because some other person sinned problem with this theology is that it insists on there being some correlation between sin and suffering. And we know truthfully from our own life experience that sometimes the wicked prosper. We know from our own life experience that sometimes the good suffer. We know that the law 
logics don't always work. That good happens to bad, and that bad happens to the good. There's a third reason that comes out in the text, or third logic. It is that suffering and sanctification or sanctity are not necessarily even correlated. Sometimes suffering is a cross that we bear. I can't deny that. Sometimes God sends us through suffering simply as a cross that we bear. And through it, God is developing us. Sure, sometimes it is a crop that we reap because of something that we've done. Yeah, sometimes suffering is indeed just retribution. If we beat up our bodies, they will not be kind to us in our old age. We will reap what we have sown. If we neglect hard work, there might be some financial hardships that are coming down the line. Retribution. Crops that we reap. Reaping what we've sown. But there are times when we simply suffer because that is the plight of humanity. Yes, suffering is not always tied to retribution. It is, it is not always tied to scorekeeping, to pay back bad for bad. But sometimes, based on what I believe, bad things just happen to good people just as good things just happen to bad people. Your life is replete with suffering, unexplained hardship. There are some people who seemingly cannot get a break, who trouble befalls in unusual ways. And then there are others who the sun just seems to shine on their lives all the time. Suffering is not necessarily correlated with sin. And good life is not necessarily correlated with being good. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense since. So after nearly 40 chapters of theologizing about suffering and the cause of suffering, the narrator finally says God intervenes. And even though Job's friends seem to have spoken theologically out of their convictions concerning suffering being tied to sin, God disrupts them in this story and declares that they are wrong. Here in the story, God sides with Job. And God says, indeed, Job's suffering is not because of Job's sins. But God does not go on record in this story to answer our generational question. Why do bad things happen? The writer leaves it as a mystery. An unanswered question. And I've learned to sit with that. I have learned to sit in that. The fact that God and life and the world cannot be summed up in easy logics, in simple folksy religion. 
And let me just posit, posit that this is the reason that many people have walked away from Christianity and are feeling that their faith and beliefs are inadequate for the times that we live in because the simple and the canned and the no-depth Christianity that has worked over the past half century no longer works in this world. And so as I close, I, I want to invite you on a journey on a journey with me to reject the simple, to, to embrace a faith with dissonance in it, with unanswered questions that are a part of it, a, a faith that has some concepts that are too difficult for us to comprehend and with a God whose ways are bigger than our constructs and imaginations can place or even begin to understand. I leave you with this doxology that Paul, some thousand years after this story of Job is penned, that Paul writes to the Romans in his own reflection on God and on God's just difficulty of being figured out. Romans 11, 33, 36 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to ask questions that have no simple answers. For open, opening up our minds, our understanding and imagination regarding suffering. That though we have no answers to the question of why people suffer, why bad things happen. We do know that it is not simply because of your retribution. It's not because you were trying to balance the scales or, or pay somebody back. Your word says that the rain falls and the sun shines on the wicked and the just. Our grandmama said we'll understand it better by and by. Here we are in the meantime, seeking answers, solutions, and logics to the world and times in which we live. Help us, Lord. Help us in the midst of suffering to somehow construct the kind of joy that Job had. This sort of optimism regarding your goodness confidence that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Confident somehow that you will provide comfort, peace, and vindication. Help us, Lord. I, I, I do ask that you will give us 
a world with less suffering, but I'm not optimistic because of what we are experiencing. And so rather than make that ask this morning, God, I ask for strength. That, that, that is what we need. For some of us are sitting in suffering right now. We are sitting like Job when he was awaiting his friends to come and comfort. And so it is too late for us to ask for no suffering, but now we can simply ask for strength. And so we ask God for that peace that surpasses all understanding. In the name of Jesus, steal our hearts, steal our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.